Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abbott. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast and I am your host, Don Abernathy. And always I want to thank everybody for your continued support of our little World War II based podcast and thank you guys for sharing us with your friends and if you haven't done so, please do. Uh, you can share the link on our Facebook page or maybe share the pages on our website at WTSPWorldWar2.com or you can tell your friends they can download us at Apple Podcast, Google Music, Spotify, um, Stitcher, anywhere fine podcasts are available. And of course, you can support the show by going to WTSPWorldWar2.com, using that Amazon link and signing up for Patreon, joining one of the tiers and also buying a t-shirt. But we are getting ready to kick off here in Florida into the World War II reenacting season. Um, we already had one or two events down here that I haven't participated in yet. But the big one coming up on my calendar is only a few weeks away, and that is the 75th anniversary of the Peleliu Battles that's going to take place in Fort Morgan, Alabama. And the last couple of days, I've been doing a lot of work trying to get the logistics done on that. We've had a lot of our guys here from Florida fall out who aren't able to make that event but it doesn't matter the event is going to go off it's going to be successful we have a lot more japanese reenactors this year which we're looking forward to and so we hope to see some of you out there in fort morgan alabama i know some of you are going to be there and so if you're there please track me down and i have some uh, wtsp world war ii lucky strike based stickers i will happily give you as a thank you for uh, supporting the podcast and doing everything that you do once again the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is recorded live, or obviously digitized live, in the At Computer Studio in Cape Coral, Florida. At Computers is our key sponsor, with the exception of Amazon stuff and the Patreon stuff. But At Computers has been providing IT support for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. They can help you out with all your IT needs, whether it's expanding your network, two-form authentication, online backups, computer repair, tablet repair, laptop repair. And as always, if you don't live in Southwest Florida, as long as you have internet access, at computers can help you. They can log into your computer remotely and help you with your issues. They can help tracking down problems with your websites. Anything you need help with that uh, can be done remotely, they can help you. So give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. Big news in the World War II community. We all heard about a year ago, two years ago I think it was, uh, one of our fellow living historians underwent some sort of surgery that required him to be bedridden for a few weeks. And he got to looking through some of his Pacific-based content, his Pacific Theater of Operations for that matter, and he discovered that one of the gentlemen who was identified as being the member of the Iwo Jima flag raising party was not in fact the correct person that Marine had been misidentified. Well, as of October 16th, another Iwo Jima flag raiser was mis-ID'd, the Marine Corps confirms in a report. Um, it's one of the most iconic images of World War II, a group of U.S. Marines raising the American flag at the Battle of Iwo Jima. And now the United States Marine Corps admits that it has long misidentified one of the service members who took part in the flag raising, three years after admitting a similar error. According to the NBC News, a team of historians recently determined that one of the Marines in the photo was Corporal Harold Pye Keller, not PFC Rene Gagnon. Gagnon, I apologize. As you guys know, I have a hard time with names. Um, but yes, the Marine in the photo was in fact Corporal Harold Pye 
Keller and not PFC Rene Gagnon, as had long been believed. The correction comes three years after a previous inquiry found that another one of the flag raisers was PFC Harold Schultz and not the Navy Hospital Corpsman John Bradley, NBC reported. The image of the Marines raising the flag was captured in 1945 by the Associated Press photographer Joe Rosenthal, who won a Pulitzer Prize for the shot and was later the inspiration for the United States Marine Corps War Memorial statue in Arlington County, Virginia. Uh, side note, here in Cape Coral, Florida, we have that same statue, and it's actually the second statue created from the same mold that is used in Arlington, Virginia. So we have basically the second original version of that statue. But back to the story, according to NBC, the latest correction of the, of the list of flag-raising Marines resulted from a review by historian Stephen Foley, Dustin Spence, and Brent Westmeyer, who works was validated by investigators from the Marine Corps and the FBI. Without the initiative and the contribution of both private historians devoted to the preservation of our history and the FBI's digital evidence laboratory, the Marine Corps would not have had this opportunity to expand on the historical records of the second flag raising on Mount Sariachi. With the recent correction, the list of six Marines in the iconic photo now includes Ira Hayes, Harold Schultz, Michael Stark, Harold Pike Keller, and Harlan Block, according to NBC. But the Marine Corps added that, in a sense, it doesn't matter which Marines are in the photo because the image represents the hard work, determination, and the sacrifices of all who served. Regardless of who was represented in the photograph, each and every Marine who set foot on Iwo Jima or supported the effort from the sea and air around the island is, and always will be, part of our Corps' cherished history, the Marine statement read. So it's interesting to find out, thanks to the efforts of fellow living historians, we are able to get the correct names out there so that the memories of these Marines and their families will be represented appropriately. And that's huge news, and I think it's great that we are getting the true facts out there. So once again, I thank you guys for all your support, and um, we got another interview with a veteran who was there another Air Force pilot. So without any further ado, let's get to the interview. And we are recording live remotely from beautiful Spring Hill, Florida. I have to say this is my first time out in Spring Hill. And being a Kentucky boy, I have to say the horse farms that are surrounding the area reminds me of a very dry uh, Kentucky with some um, Spanish pines and palm trees. But uh, we're out here for a good reason. I am sitting down with World War II vet George Pression. That's correct. Got that right, George? Yes, that's correct. First and foremost, let me thank you for all your time and allowing me to come out and invade your home and set up my studio here in your living room and just completely take over on this beautiful Saturday. And I hope all things are going well for you. Uh, very well, thank you. So last weekend was your birthday, and your grandchildren went out onto uh, social media and they asked people to send in birthday cards because you want to see how many birthday cards you can get for your 95th birthday. How many cards did you end up raking in? About a hundred. About a hundred? Probably took you all day to read all those, huh? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of help. Were you surprised at the age range of people who sent you cards? Oh, yeah. I was surprised at the whole thing, really. I just hope we were forgotten by now. No, you guys will never be forgotten. I mean, there's new books, new movies coming out monthly. I've had authors on this show. I've had uh, producers on the show who are constantly just putting out media to make sure that that never happens. So let's go back a few years, shall we? Do you remember where you were on Pearl Harbor? Oh, that's, that's really going back. 
Did you end up enlisting or did you get drafted? I was drafted. Drafted what year were you drafted? 42, yeah. What branch were you drafted into? Uh, the Army. The Army? Do you remember the feeling you got when you got the uh, draft letter from the uh, government telling you it was your turn to serve? I was young, yeah, and it, and it, I just took it by stride. Yeah. Do you remember where where your boot camp was? Where'd you go do your basic training at? Atlantic City. Atlantic City, up in New Jersey, huh? Yeah. How was that? Were you constantly trying to sneak out of camp to get down to the park? I was in a Trayvon hotel, and uh, at one time that was elite. But when we had it, it was pretty de- pretty bad shape. No, oh, yeah, all run down. Well, uh, they ch- they cleaned it up. They, they scrubbed the floors, CI'd the floors. That's not luxury. It's just you're into service. Well, nothing back in was luxury. I mean, you're you're in a rundown hotel. You could have been in a cardboard cornice hut in a field somewhere oh, waiting for the uh, rain. Uh, uh, well, I I tried to uh, a cadet, you know, uh, and I was uh, accepted to to fly as a but uh, I got injured. One day I got hit in the eye, and and they uh, they washed me out, and uh, so they asked me if I want to fly as a flight engineer, and I I said yeah I'll, I'll do that. Do you remember how you got injured? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, a chip came out of the engine. I was holding the fire extinguisher on the outside, safety, and a, fly, a little flying chip came out. And one in my eye. Wow. And they had a, a uh, I was very lucky. There was a surgeon within 20 miles of us. And I went up there and he told me I was very lucky. That the ship came out. It was a little hook in one piece. And I know uh, my vision wasn't affected. Well, that's a good thing because if your vision was affected, of all the branches of the military, um, the Army Air Corps is the one place you got to have good great vision. Yeah. So I like I, I came around good. And, uh, and I, a flight engineer is, uh, he, he stands up front between the pilot and co-pilot, mm-hmm. calls off the airspeeds on takeoff, does anything that has to be done mechanical to the plane. Okay. Clear the bombs when they go out. And everything that has to be, emergency generators is his, is part of his job. So he has a pretty good size job. You're kind of like the producer on a radio show. Your job is to do all the things that the host can't do because they're flying a plane or, you know, doing their job. And so yeah. while they're flying and the yeah. navigator is doing his thing, if something yeah. happens... Well, if an engine would uh, suddenly give trouble, uh, as an engineer, I was my job to do something about it, and I'd, uh, I'd feather it and turn a blade into the wind, and, and that would stop the engine. And uh, we had that happen, and we had oil flowing out of the engine but as soon as we stopped it. The oil stopped coming out as a safety factor. Sure. So I, I enjoyed being an engineer. During basic training, when you had your injury and then asked if you want to be a flight engineer, obviously if you're doing the mechanical side of the plane, you got to do a lot more, I would assume, more classwork. you got to learn the ins and outs of the, mach- of the, in, the engines and the mechanical sides of the planes. Yeah, well, obviously I, you probably didn't need to go as depth as the mechanics would, or did you? Well, I was a, I, I originally was a mechanic. Okay. So uh, it was easy for me to come back and fly as an engineer. I already had the training. What plane were you assigned to? B-24s originally, and later on we flew B-17s in combat. Which plane did you prefer? Well, I liked the 17. It was a good plane. Very durable. 
I interviewed a gentleman who was a pilot last week named Keith Anderson, and he said the same thing. He said he liked the 17 better than the 24. I, I watched the uh, shells go through the wing on it, and you wouldn't believe it would stay up. But they're a wonderful airplane. Yeah. So when you were stationed in Jersey and you're going to school for mechanic school, you yeah. guys do cadence on the boardwalk at night? And then you were also, during the blackouts, for those listening who don't realize this, even though the United States wasn't in direct contact with Germany, on our west coast and east coast, we still had blackout drills where people turn out the lights, you would have your blackout curtains, so that if there were ships out in the ocean, they had a harder time targeting um, targets of opportunity. And so when the, the coastline were blacked out, you, you had a submarine patrol duty, is that correct? Well, we we walked the boardwalk, uh, looking for anything strange, and we were guards, basically. Uh, yeah, look for U-boats or anything else. Anything. We reported everything we saw, and uh, it was up to the up to the brass to know what to do after that. And we did a parade in New York. Sure. That was to build the the morale up in uh, people front of people. Sure. And, uh, Gotta sell those war bonds. So it was neat, yeah. But that was just for the building, the, the home home army, mm-hmm. building morale up. Yeah. There's two armies. There's a home army, and then there's a, oh, a, a foreign war. Sure. When you go into combat, you go into the foreign war. And the home army, when you're overseas, you're directly at war. When you take off in the morning, you go right into enemy territory. You go right into Germany, you drop bombs, or to pick target. But if you're in a home army, that's different. They couldn't fly from home yeah. anywhere overseas. Well, yeah. not to mention the fact that you need the home army to, and that's, thank God that, at that time. We that's, had, that's the backup army. And not only that, but thank God we had production plants back then. Nowadays, we don't make anything here. Yeah. Luckily, back then, we had train plants, car plants, that r- tractor plants that oh, we yeah. pulled to make all the equipment we need. Yeah. A few episodes back I had on the archivist from the John Deere company yeah. and he was talking about how John Deere was making airplane parts and uh, gun parts and all that and so our entire industrial side of our country turned into that whole army as well, not to mention the guys who were training but the, the logistic army. Yeah. You know you had pe- to find people at the Dickies Uniform Company making uniforms yeah. and everything else. So, a little while after you were stationed in New Jersey, you found yourself in Michigan, and you're working on the uh, Pratt & Whitney program? Well, Pratt & Whitney engine's a 14-cylinder radio engine, and uh, that white engine's a 9-cylinder radio engine, and they're the two engines at that time were in most of the plants. Those engines, I mean, obviously by design to carry the amount of weight, because obviously the, the plane itself's not that heavy, but with the payload on there, yeah. the men on there, and the environment which they're going into, let alone the, the cold in the air, but the potential of getting shot and hit with flak and debris. By design, those things had to be workhorses. And I imagine they were almost over-engineered just to provide a little bit of a protection on them? You could run on three. They were very dependable. The radio engines at that time were worthy engine. Yeah. So, they, uh, the only other engines that the fighters were using were V-12s, yeah. uh, Rolls-Royce, that was built in, in England, mm-hmm. and uh, there was another one we built, but I can't think of it. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it either, but I guess it didn't perform as well as the Rolls-Royce engine. Rolls-Royce was a better engine. Yeah. More, more power. More power, more consistent. Yeah. 
we were studying what an engine looks like when it has problems in it. And we had engines set up and problems put on them, and sometimes they would throw a torque of flame out the back, 60, 80 feet, and we had them out on the river, so that we'd go out over the river, and uh, we would try to analyze the problem by just looking at the problem with the, the, uh, the result of the problem. Sure, because when you're stationed in a 17 and you're at altitude and something happens to your engine, it's definitely beneficial to be able to look out the porthole and kind of make an estimate of what's going on with but it I, by sight. Well, in, in combat, if you, if you lose an engine, you immediately feather it, turn the part of the blaze into the wind so it's not doing any drag on the plane, and then put extra power on the outer engine, the one engine. Sure. In order to, so we go, we'll fly straight, you know, and then compensate otherwise, you know. But uh, it, it works. <laughs> now, as your time in service progressed, much like a lot of the guys at the time, you get sent overseas, you get your combat missions, you find out where you're going. Do you remember the first place you were stationed when you went over to Europe? Well, I was stationed in England, 90 miles north of London, Gallatin, I believe that's, and, uh, and we flew out of there all the time after that. But the missions were short, we were just flying into France at first. And every, and every every day they, as they retreated, our missions got longer and longer. And after a while, we were flying round trip of 12 hours just to get into into the, as far as they had backed up. And uh, so it was getting longer and longer. Obviously, early on in the war, your head's on a swivel. You're excited. You're you know you're it's all new to you. But as as you fly more and more missions, and they're getting longer and longer, how do you keep yourself alert and you know obviously a lot of that's over friendly land the further we progress in, into into the country but that doesn't prevent well, the loop whopper from coming your way so how do you guys stay alert and keep awake on those long well flights? all you do is fly and sleep sleep in shifts yeah nothing else I mean, yeah. one hour's off you rest and then when you, and you rest the time you're in, in flight and even on our days off we flew practice runs so we were in the air all the time and it is hard. It's twice as hard to work it in the air uh, at high altitude as it is on the ground. So it's exhausting. When you go 12 hours, that's like 24 hours. But uh, it's exhausting. So you have to be careful. And I can imagine not only spending that time in the air, but you're also in those big leather and wool jackets and the pants and the insulated uniforms, right? Yeah. We, big uh, gloves on. We wore, wore a mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the oxygen was the true hoses that were plugged into the into the dash, whatever wherever you had. And uh, that that had to be careful. Once in a while, they they'd fall out on you. And uh, you know, first thing you notice is it's getting dark, and you say, and then after a while, you realize that you're know, lack of oxygen. Your your blood turns dark, and when you realize that's happening, you hunt for that oxygen hose and make sure it's plugged in. And, but uh, it happened to me, and I, I, it was frightening. But finally, when it went together, it's like lights came on, yeah. and as my blood turned clear again. So it's always it's always a risk, you know. It's, it's not it's not like the modern sure pressurized hull and pressurized suits. <laughs> yeah, pressurized everything. Yeah, everything's nice, streamlined, and ergonomic. Meanwhile, yeah. you got guys on 30 cal machine guns trying to load belts with big mittens on. <laughs> 
and uh, our bathroom's a little pee tube that you, and I don't think I ever used it, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but now is is that built into the uniform, or is that something you uh, kind of had to place in there gently? Uh, that's, it's, it's, it's just hanging on the wall. Oh, okay. Uh, we have, we were all friends. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, you guys have been through basic training. Um, last thing you're worried about is someone seeing you undressed. I mean, yeah. they, they got that out of you quick. Yeah, we don't have that problem. Yeah. Yeah, that electric sealer wire was had electric wiring in it, and that was nice because it it it, it, it heated your body right in the suit. Sure. And that was that was because uh, the ship was uh, was no no heat in the ship. It wasn't pressurized, so that's the only heat you had. An electric suit. How tall are you? Um, half inch under six foot. That's that's pretty tall for back then. I mean, it's pretty tall for nowadays too. And obviously, being somebody who's six five, you can understand the phrase. It's a short man's world. We're just living in it. Well, I I, uh, I operated the turret, which is in the middle of the plane. Yeah. And uh, the tail gunner. Uh, that's different. I need a small guy because you had to crawl back over to get to. Well, even even as you go from one part of the plane to the other, you got to crawl through the bulkhead passages and being a yeah, tall guy. Well, sure. you can go you can go all the way back, all except in the tail. Yeah, I mean you can walk. You know. I just know at some carefully, point. Carefully, carefully. I just know at some point in time you probably had to hit your head once or twice on those bulkheads. No, uh, it's 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 funny. Yeah. But you got to be careful. You lose your balance. The windows are all open, so oh yeah, you don't want to fall out. Especially <laughs> if you're over by the uh, yeah, well, the two big back windows and they had guns in them. Sure. And, uh, and we wear oxygen masks and all, and we fire guns right right on the on the windowsill, as you would say. Now, one of the things, obviously, they don't express too much in the Hollywood movies and the TV shows is the lack of insulation in those planes, let alone the the lack of any sort of muzzle protection coming off those machine guns. At the end of a long shift or a long battle with those machine guns going off, the engines rattling along, how did you deal with the... I'm sure you had to have extreme headaches, the ringing in your ears. I mean, how did you guys handle all that back then? Uh, I was fortunate enough that we didn't do a lot of shooting. I mean, during the war, you didn't always shoot. You were shot at more than you did any shooting. And the, sh the shrapnel used to come up. and The flak? Yeah, and it, and it would hit the bottom of the ship, and it sounded like somebody threw something. Like a handful of pebbles at a yeah. soda can? Yeah. Well, I, we wore, I had a, a steel vest I wore, but I never wore it. I used to stand on it, because everything was coming up. Sure. And the guy that before me said, it ain't going to come in sideways, stand on it. <laughs> and I took his word for it. How heavy were those early flak vests? Pretty heavy, and uh, there were steel pieces of but I didn't, I didn't, I stood on it all the time. Yeah. It's hard enough to do without carrying that around. Sure, I can imagine. Yeah, so it was a lot easier, and it was, it was safer that way. The first time you flew into flak fire, and then it hit your plane, whether it was major or, as you said, you know, it losing its velocity and just bouncing off the plane, do you remember, obviously it's a long time ago, but you have a recollection of your first thought when it happened, like, oh, well, we're into it now, or here one, we go? What I remember all the time is uh, we went over a little lower than normal. We were, we were down around 10,000 feet, which we were way usually over 20. And uh, that gave the ground crew, the uh, 88s, which the Germans were, they could reach us. Sure. And I, I watched the shells come up and go right through the wing. 
and uh, they were going through 10 feet apart, or about a bus or mine. And, uh, and when it got around and, and it came in, I, was, I heard a hit, hit right near me, and then I fell down. And when I was laying on the floor, I had to check and see if I had anything left. But by some miracle, I was in one piece. And, uh, and so after I, after I checked myself out, and I crawled forward, and a pile of cup on over my feet. Oh, they were doing all right, I thought. Well, you missed it. <laughs> you know, I think it's a great testament to the engineering of those planes. You see these photos, and I'm sure you've seen it in real life, where they're just, the, t the tail fins almost completely I've gone. I've seen pictures of B-7 things where they have to wing off. And yet they make it home. Yeah, they fly, they come home. Half of the cockpit's gone, or the yeah. rear tail's gone. Well, we had a lot of big holes in ours. I know that one came through right next to me. Of course, I didn't see it. And it took the plexiglass uh, out of the turret. And I got, that got in my eyes. So I was on the floor. I was blind. And I, I thought, I better make sure I'm in one piece. And my legs were there, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and by some miracle, I was all right. But uh, it's frightening. Did you receive a Purple Heart for that? Nah. Wasn't written up? Nah. No hearts. Yeah. You gotta go to the hospital for that. No, uh, you just wiped yourself <laughs> off one about your way, huh? Yeah, well, we, I never even thought about that time. Yeah, I don't, you don't fly with that in mind. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I was just glad we could work so in the air, get up front, Jack being the engineer, and help the pilot uh, uh, bring the plane home. So. At any time, did you ever have the misfortune of uh, having to bail out or lose a plane? I never bailed out. I went through tests. They used to, on the ground, put a chute on you, rev the plane up, and pull the cord and drag it down the runway. But I never I never jumped out. I I didn't like the way those chutes looked. They looked pretty ragged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think in the right, under the right conditions, I would have been next to the pilot. <laughs> You know, I've seen videos of the training, whether it's for the airborne or for the pilots, where they hook, hook you guys up to the parachutes and turn on the fan. Yeah, they, they do that out for training. And people think, well, that looks fun, but they don't realize it's, that's got to bang you up. you got to yeah, get pretty well, bruised and, you know, yeah. hopefully there's no rocks out there, but anybody who's been drugged by a horse or anything knows that that's not a fun rock. We were young, thank God, you know. And yeah. And our bones were a little softer. Your skin's a little more uh, pliable. Now it would have killed me. <laughs> kill me and I'm only 41 I, I'm not looking forward to it we were only 18 and that's one of the things that stands out for me as I do this and I have the pleasure to talk to people like George is especially look like the photos of D-Day or the Marines landing in Guadalcanal Sidney uh, Phillips famously turned 17 years old on Guadalcanal yeah that's, that's it's amazing we're just the children who win the war who now, fight the wars nowadays you ask a 16 year old to mow the grass and it's do yeah. I have to? You can't give an 18-year-old to help around the house, let alone go out and defend the world. I mean, we we were literally saved by high schoolers and college kids. And it's just so mind-boggling. Now, obviously, you know, we got to adjust for life expectancy and all that, as famously George Washington first uh, commanded his first troops at the age of 16 because, you know, you got to adjust to life expectancy. But still, I mean, to go from being in high school, being a freshman in college to... Okay, you're going to boot camp. A lot of you guys have never been out of your towns at that point. Next thing you know, you're on a train heading off to God knows where. 
and then you're over in Europe flying, marching, driving tanks, what, what has it, and it's up to you to get the job done. And there are kids, really. Yeah. Well, you went there as kids. You guys came back as men, clearly. I hope so. <laughs> Uh, Did you take the northern route? Oh, you yeah. didn't fly over. You were on the ship. Yeah, we went over to Manhattan. It was uh, the biggest boat, I think, that Marines had. Yeah. And my buck was right at the bow. They said, oh, the Air Force don't get seasick. <laughs> <laughs> Almost died up there. <laughs> yeah, they said the Air Force don't get seasick, and then the Navy guy's like, we need the Marines to carry our sea bags. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the Air Force was just be, be coming. Sure. And we were Army. Army Air Corps. Army Air Corps, and we're proud of that. Oh, I mean, absolutely. That's, uh, and uh, that was different. And you're dealing with rough seas, you're dealing with stale air. You probably want to get up on deck as much as you can, but clearly with rough seas, that's probably... You know what the battle boat's like when it's, it's going up and down. It goes up 10 feet and falls 20. Yeah, and we sat in the front of that thing, and I swear we're never going to make it. And not to mention your racks were attached to the bulkhead on a hinge and then held up with chains. Um, I imagine your racks would probably bounce up and down. My, my radio man was so seasick, he kept throwing up. So I put him in the bottom. We had stacked bag beds. So like I put him in the bottom in with, his, with his helmet. And I didn't, everybody felt seasick, but some don't throw up. Sure. And, uh, well, going to the mess hall sometimes is pretty hard to, yeah. to carry the food back. <laughs> But uh, you have to eat, yeah. Whatever you can get down. But it's an it's an experience. But we're all young, you know. We're not soldiers, like in the sense that we were well trained and we were all young. Not to mention, I mean, granted that environment's completely different. But every young teenager has a little bit of a sense of a feeling of invincibility, almost. Well, you were taught to believe that you you could win. Yeah, that was part of training and your basic training and all. You thought you you were going to win, yeah. Because you had God on your side, God and country. Yeah. Yeah, we felt eventually we were going to get it. Yeah. That seemed impossible at times, but we did it. We won it, so. Well, luckily we had such great allies on our side. I mean, at the time we got involved in the war, I mean, Britain had been in in combat since 39, 40. I mean, they're already three years in before we even got over there, four years in. Well, I remember when when the war stopped, I said to the radio man, how many missions we got? He said, 30. Up to then, I didn't even know what mission we were on. Because the quota was 34? I know it started out like a 25, and they at kept the, raising the At the end, you say it was over, I guess. Yeah. You know, nobody was counting. Sure. And nobody said, oh, I'm going home after a mission. We were here the war was over. Yeah. And, uh, and we were doing, we were getting there, so we did a pretty great. I guess a lot of guys kind of took on the opinion or the feeling that when your number's up, your number's up. You just go out and do it and don't think about it too much. Oh. Some, yeah, well, that's not a bad feeling. Yeah. A, you know, I, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. Really. I, 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 just, I just did the job I was trained to do, and that kept me alive. So, and, uh, and how many missions did you do? 30 missions. 30 missions. Yeah, each one was a target, and uh, we were... We agree. We got uh, judged on how close we hit the targets and how close, how well we bombed the areas and all. And we did very good. The uh, I forget the name of the targeting systems they had back then, but those things were just—they were the top of the technology for the time. 
Well, see, we were flying, and it got longer and longer, the missions got. Mm-hmm. And finally, we got all, all the way into Berlin, and, and uh, we had to go be, beyond Berlin, and we were running out of gas. So we flew ahead and went right into Russia, and we landed in Russia with their permission. Yeah. And they gassed us up so we could get back. That's how long they were getting. We didn't have enough fuel, and they exposed planes to do that. Uh, and then they fueled us up, and we flew back. Yeah, luckily they were on our side. I mean, <laughs> Russia had their problems, but, you know, it's one of those things, well, we'll ignore your problems and take care of this one over they here. Were now, they were an ally then, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, I always heard about the big women and all, but here comes three women carrying a, a three-blade propeller, one on each blade over the head. And I thought, holy mackerel, that's just what I heard somebody tell me one time. And I looked up and they had it up on the wing. They put the gas in. Yeah. They filled the tanks. And uh, we had women all doing all that because the men were all on the front. Yeah, all on the front lines. So, and I uh, guess if it was here, it would be the same. You know, uh, regardless of what the politics are, it's nothing brings a group of people together, especially a nation, than being in a situation like that. Yeah, uh, that's why we become united. It's the great reset button, if you will. Yeah, it's amazing. We had to get up early enough to be briefed. Yeah, you'd go into the flight briefing. Yeah, we go into flight briefing, and that's before daylight. Sure. And uh, and when we got in there, they they would once they briefed you, and, and if you didn't go on that mission, you didn't leave there. They couldn't have that information leak out. Sure. It was that secret, and uh, so that target had to be kept, because they'd made us there if we, they got that information. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because on last week's episode when I was interviewing Mr. Anderson, he said that uh, they got up to do their flight briefing, and I guess it's somebody's job to go wake up the mess officers so they can start preparing the food, and that person failed to do so. And all the pilots like, we're not leaving until we get breakfast, and so they basically stayed there until the mess officer got up, prepared their breakfast, and they finally ate and left, but they refused. We're not going on this mission until we get some food in our stomach. I, I can't, uh, it's too long ago. We, we were still using um, Best kits. We yeah. didn't have a kitchen. We didn't have any of that. We were the English did, but the Americans didn't have it. So they had they were on field rations, and we would have to get up and and, and get in line and and walk up and they'd uh, they have a metal tray. They put mm-hmm. the stuff on. But on the way back, uh, when we get home, they, uh, it was it uh, it was different. Now we we're, we're it's hard to remember. <laughs> Is there any uh, particular times when you're out on R and R, you got to get away from your 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 base and go well, out? What, what's R and R? Okay, so you, you never had the opportunity to go well, out. We, when we were going into combat, we were flying training. Yeah, we ne- we never stopped flying. So you never got to visit anywhere while you're over there. You went to London at some point. Yes, yeah, so at one point. Uh, yeah, I remember. There's, they have it. They have an underground, like, mm-hmm. like we do. Sure. Subway. Yeah, and, and uh, you can go into in London, but once you get back there, close to the base, you got to get a cab. They got a lot of cabbies, and uh, you'd have. But the guy would always charge us. You know, like that was say two dollars to the base. He charged each guy two dollars, and I. <laughs> gouged you guys. Yeah, they gouged us. I couldn't believe they did that. But what they, was the old saying? Uh, the Americans are overpaid, oversexed, and over here. And over and taken over. Yep. <laughs> I met a young girl, and she invited me to come home and have dinner with them. And uh, of course, I said, "Right, I'd be pleased." Sure. And uh, they were very poor. Uh, I remember the very nice people, very nice. And uh, they told me that uh, 
for dessert, they're going to have uh, marmalade. And I thought, that's that was a big thing. They were some they served for them. They were going to give me. Well, you not know. only that, but they were the so fact, nice. they were so nice. The fact that not only they sharing their marmalade with you, but their food in itself. You're basically you're bringing home an extra mouth for the evening. Yeah. And they're on food rations just yeah. like we were back yeah. here. Well, they treated me really wonderful, and, and uh, I was glad to be fighting for nice people. You know. Now you were over there near the ending of the war. When you were in London, they've been getting bombed for quite a bit for quite a while. Did you see any of the devastation from the bombings, or were you more into the? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can remember this anymore. Was the, uh, I was in London. You hear this noise, like a beep, 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 and everybody's running. But I don't know what we're running for. And that's the one of buzz bombs going over. And then after that, I knew I'd hunt for a doorway or something. And uh, and I I was uh, a fighter one over and uh, and uh, and I would jump in a doorway. And as uh, as he passed over, I heard a whistle, and this bomb came down and landed, a little bomb, scare bomb like, and landed it must be 50 feet from me. And I was huddled in a doorway, and I thought that's just a scare bomb. That wasn't big enough to hurt you. Yeah. And they were dropping that just to terrorize the people. Well, that, it terrorized me. <laughs> Well, and that's one of the things the Germans were good about, is yeah. psychological warfare. Psychological warfare. I mean, you got this V-1 and the V-2 rockets that had distance and could cause devastation, but also just the, the sound, because, yeah. you know, jet engines, they invented well, them. Well, that's the only time I got involved in a bombing. Yeah. I was obviously on the other side of it. Yeah. But uh, that was scary. But those citizens, you know, they would hear that scream and that rocket engine come over. And oh, their whole life just had to stop until it was over. Oh, when you hear that bomb coming down, screaming, a scream, oh, wow, it takes your breath away. Because <laughs> you don't know what to expect. Sure. We saw them coming. We were in, uh, flying to a target, and they passed over us. Rockets going to England, you know. And we just uh, we, we just stay away from them, you know. But I... I said, there they go, send that rocket, and it's shaped like a big tar tar torpedo, and it's it, it was headed right for for London, and I thought, wow, but uh, usually you don't see them, you know, they're, they're up high, and they, they usually go very high, and, and it's so scary, it was a scary war, for the people, the people on the ground, it was frightening, Yeah, there was no place to hide. Now, out of your 30 missions, obviously you guys bombed some targets of opportunity, you bombed uh, manufacturing plants. Uh, usually, yeah, usually targets. Targets? Yeah. Like we bombed a field that was a gas dump, and uh, you couldn't tell it, but after the, the bombs went down, it, the whole ground came up, and we must have hit it. Did it lift your plane up? We, we could have collided. Yeah, I just didn't know if the, the force helped helped you reach altitude quicker than normal. I couldn't tell you right now. Yeah. <laughs> that was frightening. Yeah, I can imagine. See the ground come up. The English flew all the night flights. They didn't go targets. They did cities and, of course, that's how they were being treated. Sure. So they didn't think there was nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, at that point. But we did, we did targets, and uh, it's, not, it's really better to do targets. But see, they were doing over at night, so... They just uh, you find a light on the ground, boys. Just hope it ain't you. It ain't you, right? Yeah. And so you're flying your missions. You're taking some hits. You've seen some 88s go through your wings, but luckily, as you stated before, you never had to bail out. Yeah, we're bombing, and uh, my job is flight engineer to make sure 
all their bomb bays clear before mm -hmm. we close the doors. And I look back and there's a bomb hanging on one pin. All the rest run out. And I, I told I told Paul, I said, we got a bomb hanging on one, one pin. We had a guy that was trained in bombs. I said, send him back with me and we'll see what we can do. And uh, I got back there and it, I didn't know whether it spun out or not. It has a little wheel on it that spins. If it spun out, it's done its slot, then it just hit it and set it off. Yeah. So I didn't know. So we tied the propeller on it and strapped it down and, and tried to tie it in somehow. Well, well, we had to walk out on that little narrow platform in, in the Bombay. Little catwalk? Yeah, it was about six inches wide. And, uh, oh yeah, we had shoes on, oxygen, mm -hmm. and a tank under our arm. We were at high altitude yet, so yeah, it was very really hard to work like that, but. Yeah. Uh, and it was a big help having somebody come out and help me. But sure. If you're afraid of heist, you don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah, I used to just look down. I, I wasn't afraid of heist, so. The whole bottom of the plane's open at that point. We fell out, you wouldn't have to worry. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, when we got it set, well, best we could, then we softly started home and we brought it back. That was a soft landing. I mean, that was the longest ride home, huh? Yeah, a long ride and, and landed in an abandoned ship. <laughs> and left the thing sitting on the side of the runway. You ran out like there's a skunk in the privy, huh? Yep, get away. <laughs> Who knows? It might have been that, might have spun out. Yeah. And uh, so the ground crews had to take it out. I bet they were waiting on you, huh? They didn't want it either. No. <laughs> That's a rough job, EOD work. Yeah, they had to go out and... Uh, and uh, take the timer out of it, out of the one. You know, once he got that out, then it was safe to handle again. Oh, well, it's, it all happened so quick, <laughs> yeah. Things happen quick. Sure. At a certain point, the word comes down that uh, Hitler's dead, the war's over. Uh, what was your feeling? Do you remember, we were like, okay, on to the next thing, or you finally, or? What, what was it like to the get that news? The trouble was, right before that, when they announced that, we went over, I guess they had, they had news that we didn't hear, and, our, and we flew over low to hit targets, too low. And we got, we got bombed apart. Our shells were going right through the wing of the plane, and uh, about uh, 10 feet apart, they were going right through the wing. And uh, that should never happen, because we were way too low, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the army itself has 88 guns that can shoot that height, and somebody miscalculated, and we got, we got a shot up pretty good. But there we, this was the end, yeah. you know? And I, I hate to get killed on the last day, you know? It just turns you over. You know, I, I read a book, it's called The Last Fire Pilot, and um, I forget the pilot's name. He, he was the... Um, wingman for the main author in the story, they flew down in the Pacific, and the same thing happened to them. They had to go out and fly this last mission, but as they were up in the air, the Japanese signed a peace treaty, but they never got word. Oh, yeah. His wingman got shot down. Wow. He was, I think, 19 years old. To this day, he has the highest IQ ever of a pilot in the Air Force. Hmm. And there's a famous actress now named Scarlett Johansson. It was her grandfather. Wow. He was the last pilot shot down, technically even though the war had been ended. Some, somebody didn't know what was, what was going on, yeah. that's for sure. In fact, we were so, because we were so low, they thought 
we could go over that low and do two missions. And he said, you go in, drop your bombs, and then come back, load again, and go out again. That never happened. Yeah. <laughs> Usually uh, we, we didn't eat there at all, but once in a while I'd have candy or something in my pocket. I used to ca carry a candy bar or something, so that when we come down from high altitude, we, we eat it. They'd issue guys Hershey bars, wouldn't they? Well, see, on high, when we were on mass, mm -hmm. we didn't have pressurized ships, so uh, you couldn't eat anything. Uh, but when you come down on the way home, as soon as you get under, you know, uh, 8,000 feet, or then then you could take the mask off and, you know, eat whatever you brought. How would you deal with thirst at that altitude? Did you guys have insulated canteens, or would your water freeze? I mean, how would, you're, you're flying for 12 hours. I, I imagine you got to take a little bit of water at some point. No water. Nobody mentioned it, <laughs> and I couldn't couldn't get it in where I ought to get it. Sure. And, uh... You don't think about that, you just do it, yeah. Well, as soon as we're all on the way back then, when we come down, then we get a drink and get something empty in it. Yeah, it's it's amazing what you yeah. get used we were, to. We were young. And and you get used to not having access to certain things. Um, I remember in Sid Phillips' book, when he came home from the Pacific, he was at the mess hall at the base, and he went through line, and they had all these heads of iceberg lettuce, and no one's eating them. He just spent three and a half years down the Pacific, and him and his buddy just sat there and ate like five heads of cat or lettuce themselves. Everybody was looking at it like they're crazy, but they said it had been so long since they had had fresh greens, and now not only that, but the water content, they just each sat there and went through like five heads of lettuce, and mm -hmm. so it's just it's crazy what um, you don't think about. Uh, yeah, a lot of things that weren't didn't seem right, but. Basically, we did. We got it done anyway. Yeah. Well, the war ended, and uh, they had a dinner served by prisoners of war, and uh, and you weren't allowed to talk to them, no questions. And they served us a nice steak, a nice dinner, and, and I was surprised how big they all were. They all the prisoners were look big. You know, well, it's because we fed them better than their own armies did. <laughs> they look good, and uh, you know, I'm I'm German, and uh, they were German. I'm, my grandfather came from Germany, so. They were like me, I guess, but they were taller. <laughs> but I won. <laughs> yep. And that's, you know, yes, you had the Hitler Youth and you had the extreme brainwashed Nazis, but a lot of the guys for the Weimar Republic, they were captured from other armies and forced to fight, or they were drafted from the government. So, you know, a lot of those guys, they, they weren't suffering from the brainwashing or the indoctrination, but they were forced to fight, and so they were just doing what they had to do yeah. to survive. Well, the same in our army, you know. Yeah. If they send you in a, in a combat area and, and you don't fight, they shoot you. Yeah. So that's the way it is, and you know that. So when they hand you the gun, the enemy's that way, and you better be shooting. That's just, every army's like that. So. Yeah, I guess where we were lucky is uh, we didn't suffer that that the Russians did, and that was being so under-equipped that they would give one guy a rifle and some ammo, give the guy behind him some ammo, have him follow the other guy, and if he got shot, he just picked up his rifle and kept on going because yeah. they were so under-armed. It's just... I can't imagine that. No. And even with the amount of weaponry we were giving them through the Lend-Lease program, they were still completely under underserved. Yeah. So the war is over, and you come home, the economy's different than when you left. Uh, the nation's probably a little different. We had we had the combat crews had the first choice to get out early, and uh, I was released at, not soon after I got home. And I came back into civilian life completely lost. 
how you come home from that? I mean, here you are, you're, you're fresh out of high school, or some of the guys are, you know, left college. Not easy. You I try to go back to school, machinist school, and uh, and that was that was terrible. That I, nothing went right, and uh, they used to give me uh, whatever I made, and plus they gave me an extra hundred dollars. I took the hundred dollars and bought myself a used car. I was in the Air Force. Sure. So all I know is fighting bombings and shooting at other airplanes. So I don't. I never had that ground training. I had training, but I never. I actually worked on the ground. So you got back. You tried uh, mechanic school. You weren't happy with it. You got yourself a, new, a, a late model car. Where'd you go next? Uh, uh, they tried to give me a bad car, and and a friend of mine was a master mechanic. And he said, I, I guess I better talk to you about this. He said, the fellow, the gentleman that spoke to him was, a, was one of your mechanics. He swore his law. He can't lie. And uh, he, he told a lie. So they said, wait a minute. They took the car, put a rebuild engine in it, told me it cost me 100 bucks a month, <laughs> and then we settled it. There you go. But he said, I wouldn't have got that. I don't think sure. I We didn't catch him. Trying to cheat, trying to give you the business. But, uh, and uh, so that car, that Ford, I guess I were, I had it for quite a while. So what career did you get into after the war and after your military service? Oh, what did I end up? Yeah, what was your... your I became vested, I became a telephone man. Telephone man, huh? Yeah, I worked for the telephone company for five? 35 years. Were you a lineman or were you doing the lines in the house? Uh, I uh, I did both. I started out on the, on the frames and then went out on the street and uh, did regular house installation, and eventually I became a, called a PBX man, which mm-hmm. is all business. The old 99 bucks, huh? All systems. And that's how I spent the, most of my time putting business systems, which they don't even sell anymore. Yep. Uh, and and uh, it worked out pretty good. I'm the modern day version of you. I do IT work, I run Cat6 Wire, and do uh, phone systems as well. So yeah. I, I uh, basically have been upgrading a lot of those older phone systems that are, yeah, that are in yeah. some of these older offices that no one can work on anymore. Yeah, so it was good. It all turned out all right. I got, uh, eventually, you know, it took time. Yeah. Um, well, it was new technology, too. Yeah, I forget how many years it was before uh, I really got settled in real good. And, uh, but then I spent the rest of just putting, putting systems in, which I liked it there anyway. Yeah. At what point... After the war, did you end up getting married and having children and doing the whole family life? I don't know. Let's see. Time to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> worked for the telephone company. And, uh, we met 70 years ago. Yeah, and I met her at uh, dance at that uh, um, Oaks dance dance place. Mm-hmm. And I danced with her. Were you a good dancer? Was he a good dancer? Yeah. Hold his own? Yeah. Well, you had to be a good dancer in them days. It's yeah. the best way to meet the girls. What was your favorite dance? Oh, no, I did Jitterbug. Did, 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 Jitterbug. Box shot. Oh, I did the Jitterbug, but I did the waltz, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, and regular two-step, which they did a lot. And, uh, but I, I used to do the... Uh, we were married in 1951. Came out of the service in 45, so... We you were working for the phone company as well? Yes. I worked in the office downtown. Nice. Philadelphia. Flyers fans, huh? <laughs> I'm trying to remember where we lived at. That apartment. Good thing I didn't wear my Penguins hat today. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a place. 
Came with refrigerator, the only thing that didn't work. <laughs> and that, that was a low, low class. If you have any piece of advice for any uh, younger folk listening to this. I don't know. Don't volunteer. Don't volunteer for anything? <laughs> I think they should make it mandatory that all kids should go in the service. I see the kids today. Well, I will say there's a high school in my town. I live down in Cape Coral. And this particular high school has mandatory um, ROTC. ROTC, every student. Because when I grew up, you know, they had to volunteer. And the people who did that sometimes when they had to wear the uniforms, the other kids would kind of make fun of them. But at this high school, everybody as a freshman has to, to go through it. And so the seniors, you know, no one, you know, there's no joking around because everybody's been through it. And then that whole school gets a little bit of that discipline. And I guess when you go there for graduation or any sort of school ceremony, there's ROTC guys there in the uniforms and doing the whole thing and so it's it's really well put together. That's cool. Well George I appreciate your time. I, appreciate I hope I remembered, remembered everything. It was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I'm sad because I almost wore my shirt today. I have a mine's a little bright oh, yeah. but you're wearing your beautiful Hawaiian shirt with the B-17s on it and um, I picked yeah. one up out in Texas yeah. that has um, plain oh, yeah. Before you came home were you able to uh, finagle any souvenirs off of anybody to bring home with you? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't bring any. Uh, I, 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 over, I got rid of most of it yeah. overseas. I had a the reason was that uh, I had a radio. I found a, a radio that was a, a field radio, mm -hmm. and I thought, geez, that'd be a nice souvenir. It's heavy. Then I heard that some of the stuff was uh, sabotaged. Oh. And it just turned the right way. Boom. Yeah. And I thought, maybe any, that's risky. And it worth it. That would be my luck. My grandfather worked grave registration. And uh, the one thing that I got so far, because my uncle has a lot of the stuff, he brought back the first aid box that went mount up underneath the dashboard and the Jeeps. And so I have that that he brought back. Wow. Actually, he doesn't really, he wouldn't go back to for any of the trips to England. He didn't yeah. want to do it. I, I have no need to see it all over <laughs> Yeah. Well, war's over, and this is my country, yeah. and I fought for it, and, uh, that's what's all. And we all thank you for it. Oh, I thank you guys for being that, that grace, gracious, very nice. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>